But here in Ephesians, in Ephesians we have talked uh, a lot uh, about Christian unity. Maybe some of you are, are tired of hearing about it. We've, we've talked about it so much. Um, but it, it's so important. And the, uh, the book of Ephesians has a lot to say about this topic. Uh, we've talked about this idea that God has brought together natural enemies and he's united them through faith in Christ into something called the church. We've talked about how God's eternal plan was to reunite what had been broken apart into one new humanity, not by erasing differences, but by joining together in Christ. And the result is that in the church, in the church, we find those that the world says should be enemies are actually joined together as family. What is the point? What is the point of this joining together? What is the point of God bringing all of these people from all kinds of different backgrounds and all kinds of different places? What is the point of him bringing them together in this thing called the church? Well, Paul actually tells us that. Paul tells us that in uh, verse 10, chapter 3, verse 10. He says that this has happened, and then he says this. He says, it is so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. See, in verses 7 through 9, you see what Paul's mission is, and you see something of his message. Paul's mission is to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ to the Gentiles. It is to reveal the mystery to the Gentiles that they can be included into the promises of God and the people of God. And Paul is going around and he's establishing this unified church. So that, so that God's manifold, his immense, his infinite wisdom would be known, as one person says, to all created intelligences, even those that we cannot see. I love the way one pastor named Ligon Duncan put it. He said, talking about God, he said, he's going to display the wisdom of his plan to principalities and powers through you as the church. He's going to say, Satan, you remember when you told Job that I wasn't worth living for? Let me show you something. Exhibit A, here are my people. These are people from every tribe and tongue and nation. They have come from every conceivable background. Some of their cultures and nations war against one another. Some of their cultures and nations hate one another. Some of these people have absolutely nothing in common with one another from the standpoint of personality and society, economic status, and look at them. In Christ, I have brought them together as a family. They love one another. They love my word. They love me. I have heaped on them inexhaustible riches in Jesus Christ. Behold, exhibit A, as the demonstration of my wisdom, of my salvation, of my redemption, of my grace, of my glory. This is what God is doing 
through the church. It is so that these things can happen. So that God through the church may be known to all creation. And so what is happening in this passage is Paul is saying he is called, he is commissioned to minister to the Gentiles, but God is using the church to minister to the world. The same call that was on on Abraham is the call that is on the church. The same promise that is on Abraham is the promise for the church. God has blessed the church, not just to sit in it, but to go and be a blessing and to share this good news about Jesus. Uh, Another person put it this way. He said, the church is seen as a painting of grace with God at work on the canvas. What is the point of a painting? It's for people to look at it, to see it, to marvel at it, and to marvel at the one who created it. The problem is this. Depending on who you talk to, and depending on what has gone on in your past, you may or may not believe that the existence of the church is a good thing. People note its failures. Uh, Some of you may have experienced failures, and we can't deny it. We can't deny that there have been times that the church has failed. But what this can lead to is you read this passage about the church and about this glorious plan that God has for the church. And if you're looking at some of these things that have happened in the past, or you're thinking about your own experiences, that can lead you to ask a question, how can the church be the way God is going to minister to the world? Well, if you want to see how, if you want to see how, I I think we need three things. I think we need a historical perspective. I think we need to see Christ at work. And I think we need a purpose-driven commitment. Now, let me just say, as far as a historical perspective, there are two ways of talking about the church. You can talk about the church and you can talk about a congregation. You can talk about churches, people who have gathered like we've gathered here and like people are gathered all across Amarillo, all across the state, all across the world. You can talk about churches, those particular gatherings. But you can also talk about the, the church universal, the way we have it in the Apostles' Creed is the Holy Catholic Church. That's not talking about Catholicism. It means the church worldwide. And this is the idea of the church as all believers in all places throughout all time. That is the sense that Paul is talking about the church. Paul is talking about all believers in all places. This is dead. <laughs> That's a red light. Can we have another? Thing? Sorry, y'all. Just uh, yeah. Okay. I'm trying not to cough, so I want to make sure you can hear me. If I have to yell, I'll start coughing again. But I'm working on it. Yeah, I have to be smarter than Mike here. Okay, so there's this idea. There's this, this uh, when, when Paul is talking about the church, what Paul is talking about. Oh, do we have another one or we have batteries? 
Batteries, technology is amazing, which actually leads to my next point. <laughs> I didn't even plan that. Are we back online? Here we go. Okay, I don't want to run your mic out. Only one battery problem per day. So we talk about this idea that the, the church universal is all of God's people all throughout the world. And that's important when we think about the historical perspective. The other thing that's important when we think about the historical perspective is this. Um, the world is better off today than it has been. The world is better off today than it has ever been. And in most ways, in most ways, the world is better off today than it has ever been. Now, I know that sounds absurd. I know it does. So let me ask you this question. In the last 20 years, these are from uh, an, uh, uh, an author named Hans Rosling. In the last 20 years... The, what proportion of the world population living in extreme poverty? What has happened with the uh, population living in extreme poverty? Has it uh, stayed even? Has it doubled or has it tripled? What do you think? What's happened with the proportion of the world population living in extreme poverty? Has it stayed even? Has it doubled? Has it tripled? What do you think? Stayed even. Some think tripled. I see some doubled. I see one person who's not, a couple of people that aren't falling for it. It has almost halved the, the proportion of the world population living in extreme poverty has almost halved. Here's another one. What is the life expectancy of the average person in the world today? 70, 80, 72, it's actually now, it's gone up, even in, the, even in the last year, it's gone up, 72 point like 89 or something like that, 72, that's up from only 60 in 1973, 1973, it was, uh, life expectancy was 60, here's another one, how did the number of deaths per year from natural disasters change over the last 100 years? Good. Everyone okay? How has that happened? How, how did the number of deaths per year from natural disasters change over the last hundred years? They've gone up? What do we think? Oh, they've gone down. They have decreased to less than half. Natural disasters account for 0.1% of all deaths. Plane crashes count for 0.001% of all deaths. Murders account for 0.7% of all deaths. Nuclear leaks, 0%. Terrorism, 0.5% of all deaths. But how many of us are terrified of those things? And so it's hard to see. It's hard to see that the world has actually become in many, many ways, the world has become a better place. And if you still don't believe that, let me just throw some things out there. Tylenol. 
air conditioning, hearing aids, although maybe sometimes you don't want to hear, batteries. <laughs> the world is better today than it was 50 years ago, 500 years ago, in most measurable ways. Life expectancy, education, slavery, treatment of women. We could go through the list, but you have to look back to see it. And as we look back, we need to realize that this improving in the world, and this is a bold claim, but I'm going to make it anyway, this improvement in the world is due primarily to the church. It is due primarily to the church. Now, people will say, no, this is due to technology. This is due to advancements in science. This is due to, look, you don't have to study very far in science and technology to find out those are tools. What matters is what we do with them. Anyone can come up with the tools, but it is the morality of the church that has applied these improvements for the good of the world. In fact, it is the church that is responsible for your basic understanding of morality and the basic understanding of morality in the West to be what it is today. Keller is commenting on something that um, the the philosopher Nietzsche uh, said. He said, Nietzsche argued that human rights, the equal dignity of every person, the value of the poor and weak. See, we take all those things for granted. We do, we take all those things for granted. But he values that these things and the necessity of caring and advocating for them all were unique to Christianity. If you know Nietzsche, you know he was not a Christian by any means. These morals did not develop in Eastern cultures. And the Greeks and Romans found them laughable and incomprehensible when they first heard them. Shame and honor cultures of old all thought that the Christian ethic of forgiving one's enemies and of honoring the poor and weak (coughs) was completely unworkable as a basis for society. These ideas would have never occurred to anyone unless they held to a universe with a single personal God who created all beings in his image and with a Savior who came and died in sacrificial love. The ideas only could have grown from such a worldview because they don't make sense in a different one. If instead, we believe we're here by accident through a process of survival of the fittest, then there can be no moral absolutes, and life must be, if anything, about power and the mastery of others, not about love. That, declared Nietzsche, is the only way to live once you are truly willing to admit that the Christian God does not exist Why do we care that there are fewer people in poverty? Why do we care about helping starving kids? Why do we care when one country invades another? Because everywhere the church goes, it takes with it a message about a Savior who cares about the least, who gave up his own life so that we can live. And if you take time to study history, you see that this mystery hidden for ages, God's eternal purpose, God is using the church as part of his plan to minister to the world, and it's working. So we need to look back. We need to gain a historical perspective. 
But we also need to see Christ at work. Look again at verses 11 through 12. He says, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, (coughs) in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So, So here's what I want you to see in this, is that even as Paul is saying God's plan is to make himself known through the church, then he comes along and he says, and that is realized in Christ. This means a couple of things. One is it means that Christ is the one who made any of this possible. And we know that because Christ talks about forming his church. This is something that he has made. But it also means that Christ is doing it. Christ is doing it through the church. He is identifying himself so closely with his church that to say the church has accomplished something good is to say that Jesus has done it. Uh, in fact, I heard one, uh, one pastor say one time, he said, when you see uh, some suffering somewhere in the world and, and you ask the question, where is God? The, the next question should be, the answer to that should be, where is his church? Because Jesus identifies himself so closely with that that he actually calls us his body. We are the body of Christ. And Christ is accomplishing good work through the church. And through the church, he has done more good than anyone else ever. Um, There was a man uh, who was at Heathrow Airport and this woman, you know, he was, they were, they were talking and, and uh, he said, what do you do? And she told him and explained it. And then she said, "Uh, what do you do? And he said, well, I work for a global enterprise. We've got outlets in nearly every country of the world. We've got hospitals and hospices and homeless shelters. We do marriage work. We've got orphanages. We've got feeding programs, educational programs. We do all sorts of justice and reconciliation things. Basically, we look after people from birth to death, and we, some, we also deal in the area of behavioral alteration. Wow! She said, it was so loud. People turned around. She said, what is it called? And he said, it's called the church. Have you heard of it? The church is God's gift to the world. The church is a visible expression of Christ at work. And we need to see that Christ is at work through his church. And yes, people in the church make mistakes. Sometimes lots of them make big mistakes but they can only do that by acting against what Jesus commands. And so contrary to what the world would have you believe, I think the church has been the greatest force for good in this world in the past 2,000 years. So we need a historical perspective. We need to see Christ at work. And when you begin to get those things, that begins to lead you to a purpose-driven commitment to the people of God. See, Paul, remember, when he was in Ephesus, he was, he was surrounded by an angry mob that were chanting for hours and they wanted him dead. And now here he is writing to them from prison, all because he is preaching the gospel, all because he is sharing the gospel. And they're worried about him. And so what does he write in verse 13? So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, 
which is your glory. See, Paul isn't saying, hey, my suffering's good. Paul isn't saying, hey, no, 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 don't worry about it. My suffering is easy. Paul isn't writing, don't worry, my suffering is fun. He's saying, yes, I'm suffering. Yes, it's hard, but it is worth it to be part of what Jesus is doing for your sake. So don't lose heart. He is is driven by that purpose. He is committed to the people of God. He is committed to that one thing that people may know Christ. He puts it this way in his letter to the Corinthians. He says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not might being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul is saying, it's it's his purpose statement. I will do whatever it takes. I will suffer whatever I must. I will give up my own life if I must. And he did for the sake of making Christ known. Do you have a purpose like that? What drives you? What motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? I'm not talking about your your alarm clock going off and I'm not talking about just obligation. What makes you move? What makes you go? What, What stirs up a passion in you? God's purpose for you is that you live for Him. That you live for Him. That you bring Him glory wherever you are in whatever you do. And how that looks is actually going to be a little bit different for each of us. It's different if you're a teacher than it is if you're a stay-at-home parent or you're an employee or a boss or you're retired or you're a spouse or you're a friend or you're a vacation, on vacation And I don't know exactly what it will look like for you. But it's going to look different for all of us, but it might look something uh, like the Fiji rugby team. Before their matches, they sing a song. This is my prayer. That I am yearning for so that I can praise your name further the name of Jehovah to you Jehovah help me today the petitions of my spirit I cry about them to you Hallelujah. Come sing hallelujah. Hallelujah to Him. 
What is your purpose? What drives you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? What is your perspective on the church? Do you see Christ at work? And are you committed to God's purpose for you? If you are, if you are, you cannot fulfill it alone. Hear that. You cannot fulfill God's purpose for you alone because church is never singular. It is always plural. And that's because every one of us knit together into the fabric of God's story need each other so that together with our words and our lives, we can proclaim the good news about the grace and the mercy of God that is revealed to us in Jesus Christ. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. And we praise you. You are so good to us. Jesus, you have a plan that you are accomplishing through your people all throughout this world. Lord, only you have an eternal perspective. But would you give us enough perspective to see that you are at work? And would you open our eyes to see our role in that? To see the purposes you have for us and for this church and for the people here in the places where we live, where we work, where we play. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Would you please stand as we continue to worship our Savior?